This podcast is brought to you by Enrollment Resources, innovations in enrollment management. Learn more at enrollmentresources.com. Welcome, everybody. My name is Greg Nicoljohn. I'm a co-founder with Enrollment Resources, and uh, with me today is my business partner, Shane Sparks, our VP of Strategic Services, uh, Tom King, and the president of Celsius Marketing as a special guest, J.P. Smith. Um, today, what we're going to be doing is uh, uh, our housekeeping for the day is we're going to be talking about um, something that not a lot of people talk about in education. Um, it's, a, it's kind of a different way to get regulators off your back and to get your schools performing at a higher level. And it might be surprising once we get into the content, but we want you to just hang in there with us. It's going to be an interesting conversation we have today. Uh, everybody is muted, and if you want to jump in and ask a question, if you have the courage to do that, you've got several smart people on the call here. You just have to press star six and then just go, hey, hey, I have a question, and kind of butt in, and uh, we'll answer your question. If you want to wait till the end, you can do that too. We'll have some informal time at the end of this conversation uh, to take any questions that people might have on the call. So without further ado, uh, gentlemen, what we're going to talk about today is um, the prime hook on this is how to get regulators off your back. Um, and, and so the notion, we're going to present a couple of notions today. Um, the, the primary notion is that um, you can... Um, get the regulators off your back. You can lower your marketing media by costs in half. You can improve the metrics of your admissions rep and have employers lined up to hire your graduates. And you can do that by asking the question, how do we make our school world class? How do we make our school world class? Like uh, Apple attempts to do with their products like Tesla attempts to do with automobiles. Now this question chain doesn't necessarily require snap answers, but it, what can be uncomfortable is, is in order for this to, to make a school world class, they have to relentlessly stay in the question, how do we make our school world class? And it's often never an easy answer. Care to ex, uh, expand on that? Sure. The I'm going to do by way of a, a story. So I, last week I was I delivered a, a, a workshop for a management academy. It was in, there was about 20 or 30 different school groups represented at this workshop, and we did a at the end of it we did a a session around a fictitious school, how to fix a fictitious school that had a lot of that had you know revenue growth problems. And what I what I found fascinating was that. Uh, many of the attendees were more operational kind of people. They were, you know, campus director, VP operations kind of people, and some marketing people mixed in. And their inclination towards how to fix this school really started with what we would call product, right? It, it started with culture, reorganizing programs in a way that made more sense both for the student and for the profitability of the school, dealing with 
um, you know, staff that were maybe no longer a fit for the needs of the organization and just overhauling that engine first before fixing things like their lead generation systems or their admissions processes. And it struck me that there's th that, that inclination among more operational type people was really a powerful tool that us as marketers, we could use. That well, Shane, yeah, it does make sense. And really, um, going back to those of us on the call today that have been to business school and taken basic marketing classes, they, they've always talked about the four P's of marketing. And they've always said the most powerful P was um, product. And so, Tom, Tom King, along Shane's point, Product, um, as it relates to career education, is kind of a little bit jello, hey? Because pro explorer, prospective students, once they sign up and become students, become product. That people will argue that the employers are the product. There's, oh my gosh, um, product is a kind of a gooey thing in terms of higher ed. Would you not agree? Yeah, absolutely. Uh, you know, a lot of people think that their product is their their classes uh, and their you know the programs that they offer. When really, I think the product, as you hit on the head, the product is really the students that we produce that can go on to great careers out there, uh, and also uh, those uh, those employers that uh, well, really they buy our product, which is hiring our students. Uh, but they're also part of the product mix um, that we have. Yeah, so JP, along what the guys are saying here, you know, um, and, and to Shane's initial point is in your travels and working with schools and owners and C-level people, you don't see them very often getting really relentless around how to create a world-class product like Elon Musk is doing with electrical cars. There's no kind of a relentless electric energy, no pun intended. Would that make sense? JP, are you there? Okay, let's move on. So the working pieces when it comes to uh, the education, quote-unquote, product, there are um, different elements that make up the product as it relates to EDU. Now, JP, are you back on the call by chance? Okay. We'll go and we'll talk about the obvious thing, and that is, Tom, the program, the pedagogy attached to the program, um, you know, pre-apprentice training for automobiles that are teaching people about carburetors versus fuel injection. Um, that would be an example of a of a bit of a blacksmith program. Uh, why don't you speak to that? Well, sure. I think when you're when you're looking to put together a world class program and a world class school, it does start with the uh, the programs that that we offer, um, and it's it's putting those together not only the right mix that you can be successful with, um, but also creating you know a a culture around how we train, motivate those students, um, and then and and how to how to really 
give them value or provide them with enough value to make them more valuable than going anywhere else for the same type of training or something similar uh, and creating something uh, that is absolutely unique and, uh, again, you know, having that value where your, you know, your explorer, your prospect, is someone who you know, you know, can't wait to start and realizes that this is just a must-have for them as opposed to, ah, oh, it would be nice to get that degree or it would be nice to go to that area. You want to create something that's a must-have. So, Shane, along those lines, um, must-have, there, ha- there are elements that are kind of almost magical where people will line up to go and have that must-have experience, whether it be an automobile, a, um, a smartphone, or career education. Mm-hmm. you care to expand on Tom's comment there? Yeah. Oh. If only it were easy, hey? Yeah. <laughs> And this that's why like, we have to relentlessly stay in the question. Yeah. Because well, it's not do. some snappy little brainstorm session. It's a, it's a thing where a, a brilliant insight pops in by reading a John le Carre novel about spies. And, and there's a disassociative connection of thought that bangs home a huge insight around how to make your... It, mm-hmm. it goes there, hey. It's a very esoteric process. Would, would you not agree? Well, it is, yeah. It's I, it's a very creative process, and so I think the the foundation to it really is in is probably leadership and manage, management culture, right? That's mm-hmm. what creates the conditions to be exceptional. Because, like somebody had somebody had said, "Good is the enemy of great," right? Which I thought was really a powerful way to think about it. It's you've got you know if we can be good, right? Hey, we're good. You know, compared to competitors, we're pretty good. But it's like it, that prevents the, the lateral thinking and, the, and the, the stuff that elevates some businesses so much above other ones. Like if you think about Apple as an example, right? They're like the, you know, the most visible example now. That what drove that company was the genius, right? You had um, Steve Jobs. Now, Steve was also a very difficult person, right, and was no, no charmer by all accounts and probably a difficult guy to work for, but set the tone and attracted people that wanted to do exceptional, creative, innovative kind of work, right? I think that the term is relentless when you're speaking about good is the enemy of great in that um, it it really is um, uh, just a, it's like, okay, it's kind of, Oh, flaccid, I well, guess. who is the fellow? I forget the name of the fellow. Had written a, he's the same guy that wrote that book, Good to Great. Um, had written a book about um, companies that were exceptional in terms of returns over the long term, and found that that the culture in the company was was kind of the biggest indicator of that. And often, mm-hmm. often started by a, a strong pers- individual personality that I- infiltrated their culture with um, stuff. That were, you know, that were nuanced to that business, but created differentiation. Another example, just really quick, is Walmart. Right, huge company, mm. makes tons of tons of money. You know, the executives fly coach and they share hotel rooms. Right, that's the mm. culture of that company. Is that the money savings comes down even at the executive level? Nobody's getting their own hotel room because they can save uh, some money and which is a cultural expression of the values of that business. 
So the challenge with this, your school, how do we do that? What, what is it that we believe that we can be relentless about? Here's a personal example. I, I uh, as a hobby, I race outrigger canoes, and I'm in a training group of around 30 or so people, and we have a coach who is um, a team, on Team Canada. And, and so what she's been doing uh, in a lateral leadership capacity has been reading about um, the Navy SEALs and all the other special forces kinds of groups. And, and the one thing she's brought back to our training group is she's basically said to us, when you feel uncomfortable, when you feel sick, and you're in the middle of the ocean, you're 40% of the way to dying. That's <laughs> like, whoa. And so now what she's saying to us is basically when we feel like we've had enough and we're at 100%, we're at 40%. And she's basically reframed or reset our expectations around discomfort. And by now, and so we used to struggle to do a 10-kilometer training run, and now we're doing 20, 25-kilometer training runs because we've reset that 100% of misery is, in fact, just 40%. Now, that may be a bit of a dumb analogy, you guys, but... Uh, 40% of... You're 40% dead. 40% towards dead. And um, so I guess with, with schools, I would argue that many of the people we run into are just simply lazy, and they don't have that burning desire to really make their school great. And I think there are, because there are too many, the regulators pick up on it. Uh, and, and maybe even worse, the, the people at the consumer protection people at the state level, that could be the real problem for higher education going forward. And so I think... And Greg, just to jump on that real, real quick too, it was Jim Collins that wrote uh, Good to Great. And just to back your point up, one of the things he brought up in that book was uh, kind of first who, then what, which is basically get all the right people on the bus and then figure out where to go. So it's really based upon getting people that want to all row the same direction uh, and, and work, uh, you know, that are going to work hard for you uh, and then get, get going. And that, that's a, a big foundation of kind of what you're talking about. So perhaps the really the core foundation, what you want to do as a leader is assemble people who are, Shane likes to use the word, um, intellectually curious, combined with relentless, and, um, and then foster that, uh, allow people to fail and try goofy things with, with uh, an eye to maintaining that intention of intellectual curiosity combined with relentlessness. And... So that's an obscure thing, but with, without kind of those core elements, you guys, that are sitting within your leadership group, um, a kind of a little bit of, you know, Well, here's what you're left with. Well, two, 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 two things. One, hopefully JP's back. I think he had a muting issue, uh, so maybe you could pipe up in a sec. But I think that the, what you're left with, right, if you don't pursue that, is all you're, you're left with operational excellence, right? That's the only way to make gains. It means you've got to run a tighter ship than the next guy or the next gal, right? That's, that's all there is. So in, in a – oh, yeah, JP, is that you? Yes. I'm sorry. I had some technical difficulties apparently, but I'm here. Great. Folks, I think the, uh, 
the, 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 the key piece to this is the incorporation of people. And your, your programs of study, your school, it, it is, it is the, the P that you're talking about equals people. And leadership has the challenge, and more importantly, it, it has, a, has to make a commitment to the incorporation of people in the right places, but at all times, and not to it, but to enhance it, to provide the runways or the on-ramps for people to make their product better. And I'll give you an example or, or a simple question. How many, how many at the end of a, a given year, calendar year, academic year, what have you, how, how many people go back and, and, and gather their best graduates to reconstitute certain pieces of their coursework and programs to make them legitimate in the eyes of their potential or their current and potential students through the acts of their employers? you have to work at being able to provide that platform to do that. But that's out-of-the-box thinking. But once again, we look at it as, oh, we're going to ask students to recraft our, our programs? Well, why wouldn't you? They just experienced them. Or go back a year or two years or three years of your best graduates who are out in the field and actually becoming and or your advocates in their places of employment. Being able to incorporate them into constructing courseware and, more importantly, programs that are relevant and current and applicable in today's marketplace now becomes authenticized through those people. Yes, we have accreditors. We have regulatory bodies. We have all of these people that put stamps of approval on your program. But the best, the best place that can be approved is, yes, through your employers, but more, more importantly, your graduates. And so you're really, you're really speaking about um, reverse engineering. So um, with a school, the reverse engineering to having a world-class program does not start when the student graduates. What you're suggesting is the reverse engineering for a world-class program within a school starts five years after graduation with HR experts, graduates from programs, etc., coming together and reconstituting programs after they've taken the program and then experienced it in the workforce. Is that kind of what you're getting at? That's what I'm getting at. And, and, and you can do that every year as part of a strategy to, uh, to, to virtually endorse your program by the people that were there. And See, more specifically, is, go ahead. That, that's an easy thing to execute on, to implement, but what is difficult is having uh, a leader uh, open that conversation up or resetting that process to say that our programs are going to be built not from grad day back, but five years past grad day. Some leader has to go in and say that and then, and then it'll work like a tripwire, and it's relatively easy to implement. But what is difficult, Shane, is to have somebody go, aha, like JP's thinking there is is blue sky thinking. Yeah, but it requires to drive on that idea. To drive on that idea. Yeah. Here's another. Oh, yeah. Here's here's another one. I'll I'll flip to Tom. So admissions people, you know, they all intellectually understand that um, once the explorer becomes a student, then they become part of the product. 
um, in a career-oriented school. And yet they continue to let people in who are not an, will not be an ideal uh, representative of the, the, um, uh, the, the school. I, I, quick story before I go to you, Tom, is um, we have a client who's in Phoenix. Tom, she works with you. And, oh, my God, the name's slipping my mind. You will know her. And her admissions reps, what, what she did was she said, our students become our product. And if we send less than savory graduates out into the world, when we go to the employers, um, we'll get met with mediocre response. So all she did was she created a list and said, there are eight things we're looking for in terms of an explorer for a beauty school. Uh, and if anything is off the list, you stop the, the meeting and send them out and, and have them reflect. And it was things like having a monogram, T-shirt, chewing gum, glancing at your cell phone, these kind of habits that she had managed to correlate between a less than optimum student and uh, and so... What, oh, it's really quite something. How she explained it was that if an admissions rep saw that there was a, someone was chewing gum and they were glancing at their cell phone, stop the stop the admissions visit immediately and go. This is what we're looking for to let people into our school. Here's the list. You've passed on six out of eight. You failed on two. Uh, why don't you go ponder this? And if you're interested, come on back and have all eight of these issues looked after before you walk in the door. And then she went on to say, our graduates are renowned and viewed in a very high manner. Um, they get paid, they make top money, and we've realized that a starting point is these things, these eight things have to be looked after. And the prospective students often are just shocked. They're shocked that they're getting booted out. And, and it reframes the salesy kind of energy into a, well, if I'm lucky, uh, maybe I can get in here. And they would leave. And almost all of them would come back a month later, and they would be dialed in. So, um, Tom, you want to – that's an example of, of where um, an admissions leader will go and insist that the product be – protected through the admissions process. So I'm ranting here, but please jump in. <laughs> uh, sure. I mean, it, obviously, your students are your product. And in order to create a great product in any field, you've got to start with great natural res great resources. If you're building something, you've got to have you know, the right iron, the right metal, the right, uh, you know, the right resources to put together something great. Well, when it comes to your students, the same thing applies. It's having those, those key traits that you want to see that you know can hopefully lead someone to be successful and be a great representation because we don't want graduates. We want advocates. We want people that will go out and shout from the rooftops how great that school was because it helped mold them into, you know, something fantastic. They got a great, you know, career uh, with an employer, and they're, they're living out their life's dreams. So in order to do that, you've got to identify what it is um, that, that really that makes that, what is their why? What is the, at the core of them, what's their motivation for doing this? And you've got to have a great process where you qualify well 
and you get beneath just the surface answers because people will tell you what you want to hear in many cases in some of these um, interviews or the qualifying portion of it. So we've got to dive deeper and get to their core why and what really drives them to determine how motivated they are. You know, I really believe that as long as you get a, a highly motivated individual, even with some flaws on some of the other ends, if they're motivated to be successful, they will overcome whatever hurdles and they'll be a sponge for what you provide to them and they'll become a, a great student. Uh, but Tom, but Tom if, I'm, if I may jump in, that's all dead on. But you need a person at the C-level or VP level who are, is sitting and staying in the question. In this case, the question would be, how do we stay relentless in um, letting in students who will support our world-class product? In other words, if you're send, sending in students that you know are going to be uh, issues with faculty or are going to be late or are going to be, um, have less than ideal uh, attitude while going through school and they somehow get to school and they take that crappy energy out into the world, that really hurts your brand. And, um, and so over top of what you're saying needs to be one person who is going to be given permission by an owner in case of proprietary schools or even more courageously by a dean in a not-for-profit school um, that's a risky maneuver for a dean to go to the person who's in charge of admissions and enrollment management and say, relentlessly protect our world-class product by not letting in people who could damage it. That, and Shane, so that sure. is a real high-level high kind of crappy conversation in a way. Well, yes and no. I I think it probably attracts more people than it repels, you know. And what what struck me as you guys were talking was that really culture determines what you can get away with, right? Because I okay. was thinking of an example, and it's and it's, it's sort of like a contrary example to the one you gave. There's a gentleman I met at some I don't know, conference a couple of years ago, and and he his model was to have no admissions process. So what would happen is the prospect would come in, he would say, great, well, let's sign you up. And they'd go, huh, I thought you were going to say, well, you're here for a reason, let's just get going. Now, he's the only person I've ever heard that does it that way, and I, and I wouldn't recommend it. But, hey, that guy, that's what he determined had worked for that guy, and it, it sort of built his business around that approach. They put in some, um, some controls at the back end so that if it's not a fit, they can get rid of them and... Um, you know the students got an out if if it's not a fit there's there's um, kind of a trial period but like it's an unusual approach but it was told to me with such confidence that I believed that it worked for that particular guy but he was very strong in his opinion about how things are and very clearly had imposed a culture on his school that was unique yeah, um, the other, yeah, it does. The, the other one comes to mind, the Vancouver Film School. They deem themselves to be the Harvard of film schools. And right. they have a, 
uh, an explorer comes says I want to be in film production and then they'll have a person working with them and saying okay I'm going to put you in front of a panel an admissions panel and an admissions representative and you have to have everything organized correctly or else they're going to yell at you and kick you out and we have to start again and so this person was like their their coach to get them through the admissions process and they had to have all this criterion in place they had to rehearse um, a speech they had to do a five minute um, YouTube video and blah 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 and so what would happen is they'd be given their instructions and then they would a meeting would be set up person was essentially an appointment setter and uh, they would sit in front of the admissions rep and they would go through this list and go okay let's see your YouTube video oh I didn't do it. And the admissions reps had the green light to yell at the explorer and go, look, we're the Harvard of film schools. Sally, she gave you the list on how to prep for this meeting. You failed. Get out of my office. Come back when everything is is together. Um, Now, part of that is reverse image selling. Fair. But the overriding piece is that the Vancouver Film School survives by its reputation of its graduates. And the leader of that school has instructed the admissions leader to organize things in such a way that they would absolutely protect the brand by not letting in goofballs. And so that's pretty harsh. Uh, JP, that's pretty harsh, man, wouldn't you say? Oh, it geez. is, but I think it's it's part and parcel to – can you guys hear me? Yeah, yeah. Yes. Okay, good. I just want to make sure my technology was working. It, it It is harsh, but in the same context, there's a a certain level that every that people want to aspire to. And it starts with the assumption that people want to make those those changes in their lives to aspire to that. And, it, and it, over time, you create an environment where – people believe internally that that's what we are. The student body believes that as well, but they also believe that that people innately want to improve. So therefore, they don't have to be at a certain level to be there, but they have to act and behave and move in a direction somewhat to what Tom was saying in the context of self-improvement. And that that lends part and parcel to mo- being motivated, and it's determining determining p- how motivated are people or what is motivating people before they enter into your school. And if they understand how the lanes are going to be drawn for them to help them improve, then they're more apt to move in a direction within those lanes that is positive for both themselves as well as the institution. But when the lanes aren't drawn and it's not discussed what the expectation is as far as rising to that level to be the Harvard school or you know of of uh, a film, then they're never going to be able to understand exactly what is the pathway or, or and how do I get there. And one of the things that's not explained very well in admissions, at least I find, are what are those lanes and how do I get there? because no one wants to upset or, or turn away anyone or dissuade somebody from moving forward with their life. And, and it becomes, it really is 
in the eyes of the admissions representative in some admissions department, there's a fear. There's a fear if I, I tell people how we are going to operate and where we're going to go and why that behavior is important and how you can do it no matter where you're starting from, if you have that will to, to move forward, then we can do that. And we can do it in a, very, in a way that's successful for many different types of people. But I fear that that is not communicated effectively. In fact, it's probably done in reverse where they push people away in a, in a takeaway environment. And that's not what today's younger millennial Z is looking for. They're looking for inclusiveness, no matter what level the school is at. And that's a, so. That's interesting. So, if if one can articulate the pathways to success, um, and and be very clear uh, and transparent about the processes required, when the employers of the graduates catch wind of the rigor that is involved with explorers, prospective students then guess what? The employers get excited, Tom, right? They get excited because they know that the the type of, the, the people that are coming into a, an educational program are are dialed in. They're dialed in, they're on track, they're prepared to suffer a little bit, They uh, and they understand uh, the process, that they're, they're of good, um, good stuff. And, and so the employers, Tom, start to line up because they want the the outcome at, at graduation time, so that's where it starts to tie together. So, Tom, you, you want to just build on that notion I've just presented? Well, sure. Uh, you know, pressure makes diamonds, and uh, you know, so when you've got a, a, a rigorous program and you, it's an active program and you do a great job, obviously you're going to create a great product. So the the more you act like the Harvard of dot, dot, dot uh, schools and if you want to put yourself in that category uh, and you actually carry that out by great you know, students that you've qualified well in a great program and you've motivated these students, uh, when you get those employers, uh, you know, they're the ones that are going to, you know, to, to create your success. When they hire your students and they want to hire more and they want to sponsor your program, uh, and they want to get more involved with you, and they want to provide referrals of additional people that they know that you know would benefit from you. Now you've got advocates, not only as students, but you've got advocates of your employers, uh, and they're really, you know, one of the keys to your success. And they're probably one of the keys that most people ignore, because a lot of people are just wrapped up in I need more leads, or I need more marketing, or I got to focus on my students where many times it's the employers that in many cases are driving your business. Yeah, so let me play that out with a, a little tiny practical example, and let's see where it goes. So we, we have these, these high-quality people who are high qualified, highly qualified to, to come into the programs. The employers catch wind, they get excited, and they start to um, hire these people and then you draw them into like an ambassador relationship, the employers and the graduates, as JP alluded to earlier. And then what you do is you, you ask the employers to come in every two weeks for 30 minutes to sit with a class and talk about how wonderful the industry is going or the direction the industry is going. So 
through a, a 10-month program, it's maybe 15 or 20 of these employers find their way into the classrooms and they, they re-motivate, they re-motivate, hang in their gang. This is a great industry. And so here's the byproduct of that. The byproduct is a 62% grad rate for a proprietary school or a 20% grad rate for a community college, if anyone's listening who's involved in that, spikes an additional 15%. The graduation rate spikes an additional 15%. And so the schools have these stellar grad rates and the state and federal regulatory people that are looking at that metric with an eye to trying to put someone on cash or probation go oh this is outstanding and the regulators get off your back make sense if the employers are back channeled and stitched into the the student body and start to get connected with these high quality students the career services people have a much easier job to place these students with the employers, and then the placement rates. Now, we don't have an issue with placement rates at the moment, but if the Democrats get in and control everything, we sure will, yet again. And so in advance of that possibility, um, one can go and start to actively stitch in the employers into the, the curriculum. You... Um, solve a problem before it arises because even though the feds might get off the backs of the schools there are all this myriad of uh, attorney generals at the state level as an example consumer protection people uh, at the state level that are trying to just knock proprietary schools in particular off the pedestal so you get them off your back by doing world-class work you know, the regulators aren't trying to knock Tesla off their, the pedestal. Go ahead, GP, sorry. No, this is Tom. But no, if, I, if I may, uh, go ahead, Tom. one of the things um, to, to jump in uh, with on the employer side, and one of the, you know, the points of this talk was how, you know, surviving without Title IV and, and uh, getting regulators off your back. You know what? If you lean on your employers you know, by providing a fantastic product that they can't get enough of, uh, you don't need to worry as much about additional funding because you're going to find that many of your employers are going to step up with tuition reimbursement plans and other funding sources. So, again, I can't stress enough that employers in many ways are the keys to uh, the kingdom for, for many schools. They can help you recruit. They can help supply you with products. They can help you uh, with scholarships and other, t and other funding sources. They're the, they're the forgotten piece. Most people just view them as an end to a means uh, as opposed to they're really the means to an end for your school. Yeah, so a quick story to support that, and then um, you guys can jump in with your stories as well. But prior to Shane and I starting this business in 2003, I worked as an internal consultant with the University of Phoenix. One of the things I remember I did was I brokered a deal between the University of Phoenix and the Canadian Navy. What I learned was that if you're in the Navy for 20 years, you and your family, children and spouses, will have 80% of any higher education paid for by the Canadian Navy. And so it's like, whoa. So I created this back-channel arrangement with the Canadian Navy because the University of Phoenix had an ideal um, learning process where they could go and um, 
and support people while they were on the ship for six months. Um, the University of Phoenix, if you were um, a 45-year-old junior officer and you wanted to go and get a degree in business, you would send your papers to, uh, there were 140 people, English majors at the time, and they would go and edit your papers so that it was had university rigor. There was bibliography and, and cross-referencing, and then they ship it back. And then you'd have these tweaked up papers that you would present to the prof so you, you wouldn't get fail because of that. And after four or five of those submissions, students caught wind of it. It was pretty easy. They did a real uh, innovative thing back in the day where they would take a textbook and they would go, page 32, paragraph 3, is an explanation to this question. And so they would create almost like a Cole's Notes on these big textbooks. Um, integrative, Shane and I were talking about the Institute of Integrative Nutrition. They became famous for flipping classrooms. So what they did was um, they had uh, Deepak Chopra, who I'm sure most of the people on the call know, give a lecture on Ayurvedic medicine. Ayurvedic nutrition, and he gave three lectures, live lectures. They were they were recorded, excellent lectures. He just you know picked out the really good ones. So what happens is the students who are studying that part of the program would get on the phone with the teaching assistant and say, "I'm stuck here," and the TA would say, "Go to textbook twenty page twenty three paragraph two, go to the Deepak Chopra lecture two go to five minutes and 32 seconds and watch for a minute. So the TA had basically memorized the, the, the solutions to the typical questions. My point being is that's setting about to become world-class, flipping the classroom, uh, going and doing those, uh, those little deals uh, with the, the editors at University of Phoenix. Easy to do, everybody. Shane, you want to jump in about that, or? Well, yeah, okay. The the, the, the integrative nutrition is an example. Is the, the, the product's interesting, but it's really a, a the business model is interesting, right? And if we're talking, mm-hmm. if one of the topics was how to, you know, thrive without Title Four, well, the, one of the preconditions to that is a reevaluation of your business model, right? Like, mm-hmm. if, if innovation is the marching orders, then everything's on the table. Mm-hmm. So with those guys, they were also one of the first, like it's, I think it's a $5,000 program or thereabouts. You mm-hmm. get an iPad that's preloaded with all your curriculum. They've, they've sought out these noted experts, you know, that, that to, to record the videos they never could have got on campus, right? And so they, they, they built a delivery system that's both systemizable and scalable, much more than a typical school that can fit, you know, 30 people in a classroom. And so Correct. that product innovation, right, so, they, so not mm-hmm. only do you get, you get, hey, you get instructors you'd never in a million years get otherwise, right, because Deepak Chopra is not coming to your campus, deliver it in a way that they can scale at a price point that's well below in-person training. So those three things created a scalable business, oh, that they can also sell across the world. Right, and yes. so they don't need Title Four, and the reason they don't need Title Four is they built a different kind of model. It's still an education company; it's just a different model. So that's like that's the other, you know, I don't know opportunity maybe. 
in this whole well, here, here's a here, here's another example yet again a few years ago uh, Georgia Tech um, loaded everything online and um, they sold a course at a time and you can get your master's in computer science for six thousand bucks they suck the oxygen out of the entire world's uh, masters in computer science world uh, and they got like 230,000 applicants and they just knocked it out of the park by simply um, stripping out the uh, all the onerous administration inviting people to buy a course at a time or call it a thousand dollars at a pop University of Phoenix does that too they the people purchase just one course at a time uh, and so these folks at Georgia Tech sucked the they just just wiped out the competition like by simply going and reframing the whole education experience taking it online Arizona State University is in the process of doing this as well if you go to if you work at Starbucks for a year you get a $250 credit per course to go to Arizona State University and take any course through that there's 77 programs. You work there two years, you get 500 bucks. Three years, you get 750. Four years, you get the entire course paid for. You can get a, a degree in business at Arizona State University for free if you've worked at Starbucks for four years. Uh, Chrysler has created a back-channel deal with Stryer University. In, I mean, sorry, jump they, in, they've JP. Done, they, no, they, they, Starbucks did that for employee retention purposes and, and major corporations and a lot of them that have big employee loads are, are getting creative like that and I think for for the practicality of this call there's all kinds of different gimmicks that we that you can do and things you can add but something that is really forward-thinking is, is is moving the back to the front and what I mean by that what we wait for career services why not help why not help your incoming students get a job in the field when they start where you you work with three four five employers to start with and it'll grow but instead of of waiting for them to get play or graduate and move through the program to get placed because a lot of kids will and people have problems with retention because people need a job and or they change jobs and you the piece of controlling all of that from from the very jump of when they're looking more importantly it becomes a great marketing piece as well but you work with employers where they go work at lower level jobs within those organizations that they wouldn't get or excuse me that they would be too qualified for once they graduate but to the employer now they get what what I'll call tryouts the, the students now get tryouts in an organization that they could potentially go work for and along the way they're going to get em employee benefits while they're in school and so, you arrange you, you arrange schedules with the employers themselves to fit within that school schedule you're delivering and they won't compromise it in, in our industry everyone's been so fearful of, of people jobbing out I don't want to help somebody get a job while they're in school because if I do they're going to they're going to drop and and it's a negative all the way down the, the line so J, so JP what you're really talking about is lifting the finely tuned best practice of the apprenticeship model used to create plumbers and electricians and what have you and bring that in for business IT allied health 
So, you know, you've got in a Red Seal and program like in British but, Columbia, there are four it, levels. But it, Go ahead. I have, I, have, I have clients that do this, and, the, and it's not an internship, and they're not calling it an apprenticeship. They're working with employers that legitimately have jobs for people and lower levels, and they're, you know, they're certainly in many cases much better than, than the positions or jobs they would have currently anyway. And the employers have agreed to not take those students, but to encourage those students to keep continuing because they're going to be a much more valued employee. And in some cases, instead of tuition reimbursement, if they're on, on board long enough, they will pick up a student loan payment instead. So the risk is mitigated by the, by the, by the, by the school and, more importantly, the, the employer, rather than just do full-on tuition reimbursement. If they have student loans, we'll continue to pay that student loan for you or with you while you maintain your employment with us. So, but value proposition, uh, holy. That's a tremendous value proposition. You know, there's other things to do too. Like, there's one school, Sprott Shaw in British Columbia, that give graduates a five-year access to their um, their career services department. Um, you know, there's other uh, another version of what you're just saying, JP is. You know, taking into account Moore's law and that an associate degree at the end of the associate degree, what they've learned at the beginning is becoming partially redundant due to the the uh, encapsulation of information. And so, why not set up? It'd be very easy to set up a five-year um, continuing ed program that graduates could use for free, and you deliver it webinar style. And you bring in the vendors who provide, uh, you know, a lot of the technology and expertise and material to deliver the webinars. Let the graduates jump in for free four times a year. Now, of course, the byproduct is that holding relationship with um, with students five years after graduation. Guess what's going to happen? The default rates on student loans are going to diminish because there's a continued relationship, top-of-mind awareness, halo effect with these graduates. The graduates that go and stay on this continuing ed activity in in turn will be more inclined to go and refer their friends back into the school. So referral rates improve. So I think really as we're getting close to the end of um, our hour here, we've popped, popped the lid on a few Simple ideas that just are just require you to kind of think a little crazy, and uh, and then if if these things in fact happen, where you have like for instance JP's client experiences of shared um, parallel job and training, or flipping the classroom, or extending graduate services, or continuing ed, or what have you you can create a world-class offering. And then if you analyze how it plays out, um, the, the metrics that these pinheads within government use to try to wipe out schools wash out. If you have continuing ed and um, uh, they're happy, they're getting served, the, pro- the value proposition is greater, then um, guess what? More of these kids will pay their bills.
They'll pay their student loans off, which takes pressure off of unhappiness and what have you. So instead of trying to hassle people to pay their student loans, instead, go and love them up for five more years, and they'll pay their bills because they're getting value. Simple. Tom, um, I'm going to go to you first as we wind this call down. Uh, the three of you guys can have a word, and then we'll uh, see if anyone has a question, and then we'll pack it in. So, uh, Tom, uh, anything to say? Uh, no, just really the, you know, the, the key for me is, uh, you know, especially for this call and what we're, what we're talking about, is really focus on, on two areas. One, making sure you've got a, a great product, uh, which is your student, and you, you've done a good job qualifying and training those people, but really focus on, for at least the purposes of today a little bit, really focus on those employers and, and leveraging those, uh, those partners in education of yours to help drive your business, create a world-class uh, reputation, and get them helping you drive your, your, your programs a little bit more, and you're going to find some fantastic results, I think, if you focus uh, that direction a little bit. Excellent, excellent. JP, any final words? I'll simply say this. this is in, in, if, if your career services department is reporting a number at the end of every week and every month to the leadership team versus that same career services person publishing to your entire organization the names of the people that got placed this week and where they went to work, then you have a cultural issue that needs to change if you want to grow and really flourish to the level that you can. Because at the end of the day, if all we are is chasing numbers, that's all your people ever know is that we're chasing numbers. And therefore, they're not enhancing the delivery and the execution of people moving forward, more specifically the services that we provide within our institutions that move people forward. And the other thing is people can't buy into a number, but they can buy into a culture and make it better. So if we're only worried about reporting numbers every single week, and that's what we have our career services people doing, and not yeah. reporting the names of people succeeding – that right there is a lesson to go to school on. Humanizing. And I've got to tell you, when this next recession, North American recession hits, and it will hit probably hard, the career services department will become the most important department in the entire school, in a way. Mm -hmm. um, Shane, question for you to wrap up. Why do all the marketing companies that we know and love and the sales training people that we know and love that are out in the education industry, why do they not talk about this important topic? I don't understand. Yeah, you know, I don't, I don't know. I really don't. Um, maybe because it's hard? Well, okay, here, okay. So we, we use the Harvard of as an example, right? You're going to be the Harvard of this, the Harvard of that, which begs the question, why is it Harvard? Like, why are they the name brand? And I'll tell you why, because they were the first. They were the very first school way back in 17-whatever it was. They were the very first school in North America, or in the U.S. They yeah. were the first ones. 
So and they were they, private. Course, they were proprietary seminary schools. Yeah, it was school. a seminary school. It was a trade school, right? Mm-hmm. But yeah. they've been around the longest. And so that being the first at something, right, makes you mm-hmm. the name brand if it's big enough. Now, there's not a lot of name brand slots left, but the, 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 the nature of marketing is that the product and positioning, you know, the, the uniqueness of that product is the thing that makes the biggest influ- has the biggest influence on, on marketing and sales performance. That's what it is. So you're talking about fracturing markets, positioning, and the like. Yeah, that's right. And, and what product, what the, this topic really is about, how do we be interested, you know, how, do, how do we be something worth buying, right? And, and maybe it's, it's a harder conversation to have, and it's certainly a harder thing to sell. Like it's way easier as a marketing company for us to sell leads right? Everybody wants leads. Hey, we got leads. We'll sell you leads. That's an easy way for us to make money at it, which is maybe why that's mostly the topic, but it's not the truthful thing, right? The no, it is not. Is, it's to help so, people become world-class. Well, it is. So, our, you know, you and I have, uh, I would say, quirky personalities that are, are idealistic, so maybe that makes us uniquely suited to this um, hosting these kind of chats, I don't know. But you know, the thing is, is if you focus on becoming world class, then referrals spike, and then the need for those crappy third-party leads greatly diminish, and then your media buys drop, and then you can go and reinvest in employer relationships and tutelages, as JP alluded to earlier. So... When you start to scenario plan, you can see, you know, what happens if we become world class? How does that play out? Well, man, you cut your, you cut your marketing costs, your lead gen costs in half, and then guess what? The regulators that want to go in and cap your advertising for Title IV funding, that problem goes away. So it all plays out. Um, just needs a little bit of scenario planning, a little bit of if we do this, what, what will happen there? And so because we've analyzed this, we know that focusing on being world-class is favorable. Favorable metrics, getting the regulators off your back and lowering marketing costs. The admissions people can be true counselors and not salespeople. The, um, the faculty people can focus on being world-class. The employers will line up to hire your graduates. It all plays out favorably. And folks, if I'm wrong, if I'm half wrong, but I'm half right, you know, you're still way ahead if you take the advice of the panel. And it's only half right, you're going to be way, way ahead than you presently are. So there's no downside in just staying in that question. How do we become world class? And not letting it go. All right. Look at that, 11.59 and 30 seconds. So we have time for one or two questions. If anyone wants to jump on, you just press star six. Otherwise, we'll collapse the call. Any last-minute uh, quick questions? No, I think we're done. So anybody who has any questions, reach out to Shane or I at Enrollment Resources or Tom or JP at Celsius Marketing for clarity on any of these ideas, and we're pleased to go and put some meat on the bones. So everybody start thinking about it. How can you become world class? Stay in the question. Don't leave it.
Have a great day. This podcast is brought to you by Enrollment Resources, Innovations in Enrollment Management. Learn more at enrollmentresources.com. 